This is the Living Vertizano podcast brought to you by The Church at Riverstone, a fellowship of the Church of the Nazarene in Madera, California. Our episode today examines Matthew 27, 45 to 66, finishing the account of Jesus' death on the cross, his burial, and the posting of the guard at the tomb. Together, we will be discussing Jesus as the fulfillment of Israel's messianic promise and the ushering in of a new kingdom. Hi, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Natasha. I'm Brittany. I'm Derek. And we are the Living Vertizontal Podcast. Back with you guys this week as we continue our journey through Matthew. Um, Last week, as a quick reminder, our episode examined Matthew chapter 27, verses 27 through 44, uh, where we read the accounts of Jesus being mocked and then him being hung on the cross. Uh, Together, um, from these, we discuss the importance of listening first in all we do. This week, we're going to be continuing in Matthew 27, but ultimately finishing it out um, as we work through verses 45 through 66. Uh, Within this passage, we will be reading of Jesus's death on the cross, his burial, and the decision to post a guard at his tomb. And I believe today we have Derek reading for us. So Derek, would you read Matthew 27, 45 through 66? Yeah. So verse 45, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine, vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day, the one after preparation day, The chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. 
Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. All right. Thank you for reading that, Derek. Um, well, there's a lot of a lot of ground here to cover, a lot of places that we can go. So let's just go ahead and jump right in. Um, what are you guys seeing? What's standing out to you? What questions do we have? So um, I have a question. The Since there is a lot, let's start at the very first verse. Um, at noon, it says darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. There, I, I'm thinking there has to be some kind of significance to this darkness. Yeah, so I guess in answering that question, maybe I should preface my answer with um, a quick statement and a, a reminder for all of us um, about the the purpose uh, for the Gospel of Matthew in its entirety. Um, I know we hadn't started the podcast yet when we first began our journey through Matthew, so I don't know that we've ever actually talked about this on air. Um, so maybe it would be wise for us to start there. So Matthew is being written uh, to a group of predominantly Jewish Christians, the, the belief is, right, that this is their their best understanding, written to a group of predominantly Jewish Christians uh, who are facing some serious persecution in their, um, or, or pushback, really. Like, people are not necessarily killing them, but they're challenging their beliefs in Jesus as the Messiah. They're painting him like, like he, he died, a and um, he also broke the Sabbath and and how can the Messiah do these things? So they started to call into question, push back who Jesus was really. Like these Jewish Christians believe that Jesus was a Messiah, but the other Jews who don't are saying, well, how could he have been the Messiah? Because he died and um, he also broke rules on the Sabbath. The the Messiah wouldn't do those things, um, and so. It's with that in mind um, that you see Matthew throughout the entirety of the book regularly connecting Jesus back with the Old Testament, the law, and the prophets. And I guess in so doing this, Matthew paints Jesus as the continuation of the story of Israel. He firmly roots Jesus in the prophecies of the Old Testament and and the fulfillment of those prophecies, the the full fulfillment of those prophecies. And so um, essentially Matthew combats this uh, pushback of, well, he can't be the Messiah with, no, it is actually our, our tradition that that affirms the reality that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. Um, And so with that in mind, uh, as we look at this um, first verse about the the darkness falling over the land, um, that's actually a a reference to uh, Amos. Uh, Let me me turn back there really fast. Uh, Amos uh, chapter 8, verse 9 specifically. Um, But before that... Uh, before verse nine, instead of reading it, I'll just give a quick recap. If you want to, I, I encourage you go to Amos uh, chapter eight and and read it. But leading up to verse nine, Amos is um, in the midst of of a, a vision from God, and God is pointing out to him 
all of the wickedness and the unrighteousness and the brokenness that exists in the way that the people of Israel are living and the way that they are practicing what they do. And it is when it gets to verse nine, um, after talking about all this cheating, all this dishonesty, all of this skimping and their measures, like this is stuff that's happening in the temple that, that, um, is being called out by the Lord. But then you get to verse nine and it says in that day. So in this day of judgment, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your singing into weeping. And he goes on and and explains what's going to happen on that day. But the the first symbol of that day of judgment, that first symbol of, of that coming to an end of the things that have existed is darkness. Darkness over the land, specifically at noon. And so you have the author of Matthew in the telling of the story of the crucifixion painting this picture that Jesus and the circumstances around his death are actually fulfilling the the prophecies in Amos. And so as we um like think about what Amos was saying then, but bring that into the conversation now and allow the prophecy to maybe even speak further uh, into this current conversation, we begin to see the potential that Matthew is communicating that the old age is coming to an end. With, With this first symbol of the darkness this old age, this everything before is coming to an end with an ending comes a beginning and the the beginning of the new age is upon us. And, and that is something that was, I I believe um, even foreshadowed by Christ himself at uh, the last supper when he's holding the cup and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. And and I, I think we're seeing right here, this, this marker of the old coming to an end and the new beginning. So as we're on this conversation of the fulfillment of prophecies, the very next verse, um, when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a reference to David's Psalm uh, 22. And there's so much in this Psalm that is fulfilled in what we have read about Christ um, through on our journey through Matthew and what is presently surrounding this situation, particularly these last moments um, on the cross. And so I'm going to go ahead and take a second and read Psalm 22 at length. And I just want to encourage us to listen to the words of this Psalm and hear the pieces of it that are being fulfilled in Jesus's death on the cross. And so Jesus would have known this, right? As he calls out um, to God in this moment, using these specific words, he would have been very specifically referencing this Psalm of David. And so um, there's symbolism in this as well. So let's go ahead and read Psalm 22 together. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? 
My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions that tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a pot's herd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword. My precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him, revere him. All you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. And so as I, as I contemplate and consider the words here in Psalm 22, we're, we're looking for this Messiah to be this David, right? Um, and in this Psalm, in Jesus's words here, which Matthew takes the time to highlight, we see very clearly the parallels between David's heart and that of Jesus, David's experiences and that is of Jesus. And we recognize he is the fulfillment of this new David. He is the messianic king that is to come. And I think even with that, like, again, recognizing a number of things recognizing that the the 
the Jews potentially that were around the cross, we know that there were, I mean, we know that there were some because the women were there at minimum. Um, but also the Jews that are reading the, this gospel message, right. And, and being affirmed of their belief in Jesus as the Messiah, they, they have an understanding of the Psalms of the old Testament. And so when they hear or read Jesus quoting the first verse of this psalm, they're also thinking about the fullness of the psalm. They're not just thinking about verse 1. They're thinking about all of Psalm 22. And so the, the unique thing about this is that by Jesus calling out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me in this moment of darkness, in this moment of desperation, in this moment of suffering and anguish, you, you see him invoking Psalm 22, which we see the anguish, we see the suffering, we see the, the despair, but Psalm 22 doesn't stay there, right? Like it's, um, I, I highlighted it in my Bible. It's, it's right around verse 22 of Psalm 22 that you see this turning of the corner occurring where David is no longer focused on like the absence of God, but he comes to this recognition and in this place of we need to praise and worship God because he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him. He has listened to his cry for help. Like you see David coming to this, this realization that even though in the moment he feels abandoned, he knows he's not. And so, so Psalm 22 turns to hope. We don't, we're not left in despair very long. And I, I got to believe that both Jesus and the author of Matthew in quoting the first line of this Psalm, they are foreshadowing this reality that though this is a moment of despair, the truth is God has not forsaken and hope is on the horizon. And the, the, the corner will be turned shortly. This is not something that's going to last. Yeah, I feel like you're seeing the humanity of Christ and the divinity of Christ. You see the humanity in his, in his cry. And yet, as you alluded to, Nick, I think this has to be on his mind because as he's there, like he recognizes without you know, being obedient to what the Father's asked, like there is no hope, and so it's it's almost like there, I don't know. There's like this. Um, I don't want to say tension. That's not really the word I'm looking for. But you know, this position of where you see the humanity that he is no different than you and I, physically speaking, that he endures the same things, and yet you see the divinity of Christ, where he recognizes this is it. Like this is the end of the old by by completing this task that the Father has given given me that this old way is passing away and that something new is breaking in, that the kingdom is breaking in, this new covenant is being fulfilled. Everything that has been spoken is being fulfilled right here. Hope is on the horizon. I think that in thinking about this before we go further, as we reflect on what this might say to us now, I think, I think the message is the same right? 
um, that, that God is, in fact, with us. And even though we might find moments where we feel abandoned or we feel like God is not near, that's not true. God is, in fact, near. And in Christ's death on the cross and his suffering that he endured, like we can know that God is, in fact, nearer than we could ever imagine because he has experienced the suffering, the pain, the ridicule that, that we might be enduring as well. And so um, I know this kind of moves forward into next week, but Jesus makes this statement, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, to his disciples as he sends them out. And that statement is the, that fulfillment of the hope of Psalm 22, like the, the full realization of the hope of Psalm 22. And it's the thing that we can cling to as well. And so when we find ourselves in a moment of despair, when we find ourselves in a moment of darkness and a moment of suffering where we resonate with those words of my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We have, we have got to stop stopping in the first line of Psalm 22 and, and realize the, the truth of the matter in the rest of the Psalm and, and the fact that God is in fact with us. And I know this is, um, this has been something that I've I've tried to practice more and more, uh, just in everyday life outside of suffering moments. Um, recognizing that Jesus is with us through His Spirit, He is with us, and so whatever circumstance we are encountering, whatever situation we are facing, like we have an opportunity to see where He might be at work. And I know that when we are enduring times of suffering it gets harder for us to look outward because we're usually so focused inward on what we're going through. But we've got to remember that God has not forsaken us. He has not left us. Maybe we're not seeing him because we're not looking for him, but we have an opportunity to look for him. And, And Psalm 22 and Matthew 28 reminds us of the reality of the hope that we have and the truth that he is always with us no matter what we're going through. As we continue to watch the fulfillment of these promises or prophecies unfold, I think it would be worth noting just for a moment that this wine vinegar that's offered uh, to Jesus, this is basically kind of his last act before he gives up his spirit. And Jesus at the Passover meal just a couple days prior has declared that he will not drink of this cup again um, until he comes into his kingdom. Mm -hmm. And so we see this echoing again of that new covenant, of this new kingdom that we're walking into. And so Jesus is symbolizing that by taking of the cup Mm -hmm. in this unconventional way, but taking of the cup, um, kind of propelling that continued conversation that the old has gone, the new has come. And so with this passing of the old and the coming of the new, we get to really an abrupt stop in the story. When somebody comes into the, like into their kingdom, you would think that there, there something dramatic is going to happen with them. But at this point in the story, we read 
that Jesus gave up his spirit. So in that one verse in verse 50 where he, you know, releases his spirit, the next few verses discusses this just chaos that ensues. And um, when we look at verse 51, um, most people, when they look at this, um, is they're thinking of that the temp- the curtain of the temple is being torn to allow access for um, the Jews access to God where where they don't have to do this ritual. They don't have to send in a surrogate to go in and stand in for them, but that they would have this access to God. Um, But also with that, that veil being torn, there's an earthquake, the rocks split open, the tombs open, bodies of godly men and women who have died are raised from the dead. Just these things that, you know, and if you think about it, the spirit of God was on earth and in an instant it is gone. And in that, then the reaction to that spirit being removed is just complete chaos in our world. It almost feels like a Genesis account, like right here. So we see this chaos and then Jesus, like there's this something coming over the centurion, you know, where he, he recognizes that surely he is the son of God, like who he, he, he is, who he says he is. You know, in Genesis, God spoke into chaos. He spoke order into chaos. And this is kind of, it feels similar in that there's order being spoken in the middle of chaos. Because even in the midst of what's taking place, like a Roman centurion is recognizing the one who just gave up his life on the cross was exactly who he said he was. And the irony is, like, all the people that Jesus had been trying to reach like are missing it. And this guy who I don't even know how much interaction he possibly had with Christ. And yet he recognizes uh, that he really is who he said he was, that it w- they weren't just words. Um, but, you know, it's as if God is speaking order into the centurion's life. Just like God Amidst did the chaos, just like He did in in Genesis. Yeah, and you know the thing that I find most interesting about uh, this statement about the the centurion being the one to make this proclamation, this exclamation, is like he is essentially would be a representative of the Roman government, right? Like. He represents everything that the Jews are against, except for Jesus, right? Like (laughs) the Jewish establishment is hardcore against Jesus as we've just gone through because they just crucified him. But I mean, they're also really against Rome. And yet Rome at the death of Christ is the first one to, to come to the realization that Surely this was the son of God. Surely he is who he was accused of being. And, and that's just, I mean, it's incredible how, I mean, how often is this our story? How often is it like we who should know better? How often is it we who miss it? 
Or you could even say, how often is it that Jesus speaks through the most unlikely like individual? Even more so. <laughs> right. Of all the people he could he could choose to help connect the dots with. It's this centurion who's been tasked with essentially carrying out the order of Pilate to to make sure that, you know, he's dead and and that well eventually they're gonna stand guard and make sure that he doesn't go anywhere. But you know, the the very people that have been tasked with taking his life are the ones that are like he's like, Yeah, I can speak through this individual. Right. And then I mean, on that topic going further, I in the next couple of verses, right, it, it has this account of um, many women were there watching from a distance and it talks about who they are. And these are, these are people who have been with Jesus since the beginning of his ministry. And I should say, these are women who have been with Jesus since the beginning of his ministry. And there is something very uniquely not present or very clearly not present of those who are present. And that is his disciples. And, and I think like, that is drawn like focused on even more with the last one being and the mother of Zebedee's sons. So James and John's mom was there, but they were nowhere to be found. And and so again, you have this like the people who you would least expect to be making this proclamation or even to be present at the crucifixion are the ones that are there the ones that you would expect to be there, you know, the ones who have been standing by his side, proclaiming that they, you know, could drink from this cup, that they would never abandon him. The ones who are asking to be at his right and at his left, they're not there, but these others are. And it goes to show that regardless of what your role is, there is a role for everyone even the one that we think is unusable, the one that you think has no place in the kingdom. You know, because as you talked about, like the Romans would be despised by the Jews. And Jesus is like, yeah, I can speak through that guy. I can. Like I can connect dots and I can penetrate his heart and he can see me for who I am. And women who we've talked about who had a, you know, pretty low standing, yeah, a low role in society. Yeah, and Jesus is speaking through the very um, or, or is is being is demonstrating faithfulness through these women through the most <laughs> unlikely of yeah. of people. And so, why do we ever get the idea that there's like a standard of what it looks like for somebody to be able to be used? Hmm. Like we have, we're so good at being able to say, well, you know, God can use you. But, you know, your, you know, your usefulness isn't as high as someone else. And anytime we do that, that's when God's going to be like, okay, like you, obviously we shouldn't be trying to decide those things because we should be allowing God to do that. Mm -hmm. But then he does great things like using a centurion to say, surely he is who he said he was. Everything that's taken place obviously proves that he is who he said he was. Mm -hmm. And this chaos has spoken to me. And I mean, I feel like that's what it's saying to the centurion. Like, 
I, I recognize him through everything that's going on. And, and that even, I mean, that's echoed by Paul later on. I, I believe it's in uh, Romans uh, 20, 1, 20, where Paul actually talks about how like people in general are without excuse because God has been revealing himself through creation since the beginning. And we see that right here, right now. We see that like the centurion, we've actually talked about this now for a number of weeks throughout our, our journey through Matthew, that there's going to come a play, a time when we are standing face to face with the truth and we have a decision to make. Like, are, are we going to orient our life to that truth or are we going to continue in a different direction? And, and we don't necessarily know what the centurion did, but we do know what he confessed. And it seems like this is that moment where the centurion is faced with the truth and instead of ignoring it or dismissing it and saying, man, this is some crazy stuff going on right now, right? Like he actually says, witnessed to by the chaos, surely this was the son of God. And, and, and he responds. And, and I mean, like I said, Paul, Paul alludes to the fact that, that none of us are going to be without excuse. And so all of us are going to come face to face in some way or another, whether it's through the chaos, whether it's through uh, a conversation with somebody. And so what is our response going to be? Are we going to uh, be as humble as this Roman centurion and, and recognize Christ for who he is? Or are we going to turn the other way? I would say uh, also... I. I I would be remiss uh, because a number of people uh, in uh, on Sunday morning were asking about this, and um, even I was kind of taken back by the the statement um, in verse uh, fifty two and fifty three, where it talks about uh, tombs breaking open and bodies of holy people being raised to life and and coming into the city and appearing to many people. Um, what do we do with that? Right. Um, and as I spent some time in it, um, where we started this show actually, I believe even speaks into this conversation where, you know, Jesus is throughout the gospel of Matthew being painted as the continuation of the fulfillment of the story of Israel. And so this is no different like this this particular set of verses is actually cross-referenced in Ezekiel um, in, in the Valley of Dry Bones. Um, and so uh, let me read it. It's Ezekiel 37, um, 37, 13. It says, Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord. And so we have this continued uh, uh, testimony of all of these things that are taking place, from that first one where we talk about the darkness to this last one where we talk about the bodies coming out of the grave and, and coming to life. All of these things are pointing to the reality that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. Jesus is the one that Israel has been looking for. Jesus is uh, 
the the continuation and the culmination of the story of Israel. So as we look at this, these passages as a whole, um, we see that, you know, Jesus is fulfilling all these prophecies and he is doing what he set out to do. He said he has set out to save humanity. And once his spirit is released, there's chaos. And through that chaos, the unlikely people are used to, to tell the story, to identify who Jesus is. And as it was said, there's noticeably people missing. And I think when, I, when you look at this as a whole and you see that there is, that, that everything's coming to a head, that everything that Jesus has talked about through his ministry of what was going to happen, that he was going to die, that the temple was going to be destroyed. And when that comes to head, and that that looks different than what they had initially thought, or I think also what they had desired, Mm. that the ones that are there are not necessarily who we thought they would be, that the disciples have ran and gone and and hidden and are scared. And the ones that are being used are the ones that are there. And I think when Jesus is doing things and things don't look the way we think they look, are we going to stand and trust that he has it under control? Are we going to run and hide and lean onto our own understanding? Are we going to be like the Roman centurion and proclaim that he truly is the son of God? Or are we going to be like the disciples and run and hide? Be sure to follow the Living Vertizano podcast to stay current on all our new releases. To learn more about the church at Riverstone, visit us at thechurchatriverstone.org.